Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Join Hoda Kotfi for a brand new season of her podcast, Making Space. For season five, I am making space to talk to people who are providing a sense of hope and inspiration when life changes course. Uplifting conversations with inspiring individuals like NFL legend Drew Brees, singer-songwriter Ziggy Marley, and today's show co-anchor Savannah Guthrie as you have never heard her before. I found faith more viscerally, not because the bad thing didn't happen, but because it did. I promise you, like me, will leave these conversations with some wisdom for your own journey, empowered and inspired to make space in your own life. New episodes of Making Space with Hoda Kotb are released every Wednesday. Listen now wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, this is Ibby Owens, and you're listening to the award-winning podcast, Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. I'm also the host of Moms Don't Have Time to Lose Weight, And I'm the editor of the anthology, which you should run out and buy, called Moms Don't Have Time To, a quarantine anthology. All proceeds of that book go to COVID-19 vaccine research. And I'm the editor-in-chief of Moms Don't Have Time To Write, a new publication on Medium. And we're accepting submissions, so please send your personal essays there. And if all that isn't enough, you can follow me on Instagram at Zibby Owens, and my website is ZibbyOwens.com. Okay, now back to this amazing podcast. Donnie Walton is the author of The Final Revival of Opal and Nev, which is a spectacular debut, according to Publishers Weekly's Starred Reviewed, that has been named one of 2021's most anticipated books by Essence, Vogue, Oh, The Oprah Magazine, Elle, The Independent, Lit Hub, Pop Sugar, The Millions, and Hype Bay. Her work as a fiction writer and journalist explores identity, place, and influence of pop culture. A McDowell Colony Fellow, a Tin House Scholar, and a graduate of the Iowa Writers' Workshop, she has worked as an executive-level editor for magazine and multimedia brands including Essence, Entertainment Weekly, Getty Images, and Life. A native of Jacksonville, Florida, she lives in Brooklyn. Welcome, Donnie. Thank you so much for coming on Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books to discuss the final revival of Opal and Nev. Amazing. Zippy, thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here. So I have to say, when I started this book and you have an editor's note in the beginning, I I was like, oh, I guess Donnie's name is really Sunny. And <laughs> I was I was like, oh, okay. So her real name is Sunny Curtis. And interesting that this is her family. I didn't realize that this is sort of part memoir. And then I was like, I am a moron. That is not at all what's going on. This is all fiction and it is so clever and so like unique and awesome. So thank you so much. (laughs) Why don't you, so basically, why don't you tell listeners how this whole, the concept and structure of the book is how you came up with it. And then more about just like how you came up with this idea in general. Sure. So, you know, I'll start talking about the structure. It's a fictional oral history, which is basically a series of interviews. And it's sort of, you know, interjected with bits of memoir from the journalist who is putting together this story of Opal and Nev, who are an unconventional duo, a Black American woman and a white Englishman who make music together in the early 1970s. I worked 
many years as a journalist at Entertainment Weekly, actually, for about six of those years. And oral history was a format that we always used to tell the stories of like big, beloved movies and albums, just to kind of get the story from all the people involved of how those things came together. And it was always a format I really loved to read stories in because you had, you know, voices overlapping and those voices were often, you know, celebrities. So they were full of personality, really big, you know, voices coming through. And also like the ways that memories would compare and contrast And so the reader is also kind of looking for the truth in between the lines of everyone's memories. And so I was really intrigued by that idea for this, for this book. Wow. And then how did you, like, what, when did you decide you wanted it to be about performers and this relationship between them and, and to have this editor be a voice? Cause that, and I mean, the oral history Sorry, I'm like stumbling over my words, but oral history is such a cool concept in general because it's almost like this could be a podcast, like the whole book could, you just hear it, right? It's a- I love that idea. Right? (laughs) Gotta do it. I'm sure you have lots of plans to do things like that. (laughs) Using the oral history of it to do it on, you know, to make it like a very, a companion piece, if you will, but to read it. Yeah, the audio book is gonna be awesome. I have to say, we're very excited about that. You, you must have like amazing people reading all the voices. And yes. Yes. I cannot wait to share more about that. Oh my gosh. Okay. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. That's going to be great. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, I'll tell you a bit about how the idea sparked. In 2013, I was watching concert footage from one of my favorite bands, Talking Heads. And at center stage, you had the front man, David Byrne. If anyone remembers the Once in a Lifetime video, you know, he sort of dances in a really quirky way, you know, and he's just such a fascinatingly kind of weird figure that I've always really loved. But then the camera pans over and then you see to his left, his backup singers, two Black women whose names I've since learned are Lynn Mabry and Edna Holt. And I found them so fascinating as well. Like they had like these braids and these red lipstick and they had like these gray short suits that matched his boxy gray suit. And I had this crazy urge to stick my hand in the screen and literally pull one of them to center stage with David Byrne and just watch them for the rest of the show. And I just could not get that image out of my head of these two people together. And so that kind of sparked a series of what if questions, like what if two people like this really did get together and make kind of artsy, weird rock and roll music. And I just started going from there. Wow. Yeah. Even in your opening, in the letter where you're Sunny, who is the protagonist of Swords telling the story, has her own really powerful story with her own death of her father and how, and the mother's alter ego of sorts, you know, in the family with having to compete essentially against somebody. So with so much spotlight on her and all of that. Yes. And that like the secret, I mean, it's a lot of like pain and also a lot of like gratitude deferred when she realizes what's been going on all these years and then undertaking this big project. It's so neat. It's, I don't know, I'm not making much sense, but so tell me about how you got your start as a writer. How did, I know you were at Entertainment Weekly and all these other things, you have an MFA and everything, but tell me more about your journey 
to getting here. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, again, I was a journalist for 20 years and I got into that field because, you know, even as a kid, I was very practical. I always loved to read and I always wanted to write fiction, but I didn't know that you could like actually like make a living (laughs) doing that. I just, it wasn't like something that I thought was a practical thing to do. And so that's why I entered journalism. But the secret about journalism is kind of like the higher up you get, the less writing you do. So near the end of my career, you know, as I was an executive level editor at Essence Magazine, wonderful brand, loved my experience there. But, you know, it was a lot less about writing and a lot more about managing people, doing some light editing. And so I still had this craving inside me to express myself creatively. And so, you know, I started writing this book kind of on the edges of my day, like really early in the morning. If I had the energy after work, I would work late at night, like any time of day that was quiet and my emails weren't blowing up (laughs) was when I was writing. And I reached a point with it where I just wanted to focus on it full time. And I, you know, had a friend who was a writer and was telling me kind of about all the opportunities that are out there, the fellowships and things like that. And so I applied for a fellowship at an artist residency called McDowell and I got in. And, you know, when I applied for that, I promised myself that I would really go for it if I got in, really not thinking that I was going to get in. But when I did, it was like, okay, time to jump. And I did. And I ended up, while I was there, learning about such a thing as an MFA. And that fall, I applied to programs, got into Iowa. And that's where I finished the first draft of this. There's such an allure of Iowa and McDowell and Gyato and all of these places. Like, what was it like to actually be there? Like, was it, what was it like, both of them? I mean, when you got to McDowell, did you meet people there who are now like, Uh, who are like the most brilliant writers ever or like what was it? So, yes. So Jeremy O'Harris was at McDowell when I was there and we all knew that he was like a star. (laughs) We were like, oh yeah, he's going to be famous. And of course now he is. But when I was there, it was the, the wildest feeling. I had climbed so high in my professional career, but I felt like a deer in the headlights when I was there because I knew nothing about the artist's life, you know, and all the artists who were there. And the cool thing about it was that it's interdisciplinary. So there were visual artists and filmmakers and composers. They were so warm and welcoming to me. But I will say, like, it took probably the first couple of weeks just to realize that, like, this was real life because it was it felt like such a dream. It was so amazing to have that time and that space to just focus completely on your art. It was such a gift, such a gift. Wow. What if you like I always wonder what if you got to one of these places and you like couldn't think of anything to write? Would that just never happen? Like, what if you had? (sighs) Yes. (laughs) Yeah, you know, I think like sometimes it maybe does, but I think the quiet and kind of the absence from the busyness of your everyday life kind of puts you in a headspace where you're able to just like think creatively, you know, and play, play around with different ideas. Yeah. And then highly recommended. When you got to Iowa, having already been a journalist for 20 years, what 
was that like? I feel like it's like the Rodney Dangerfield back to school moment where he's like all of a sudden, right? Well, it's so funny, Zibby, that you say that because I was the oldest person in my class. So I didn't kind of feel like Rodney Dangerfield. But, you know, because I knew what it was to work <laughs> and I knew all of those things, like the whole thing just felt like a blessing. You know, I was like, I can't believe I get to do this. It was just, it was great. And I loved building community there, you know, especially with the other writers of color. It was really important. We're still very close to this day. We do Zoom catch-ups and all of these things and support each other. But I think also because I was older, I went in with a confidence in what I was doing and an understanding of what feedback to take and what to sort of like leave on the table. You know, I had a very clear sense of what I was doing. And so age in that way really worked for me. And so did you finish this book there? I did. Yes. I, I promised myself I would finish a full draft of it by graduation. And I think I finished just two weeks before my deadline. And did that involve workshopping? Did your class? Oh, yeah. Yeah. A lot of my classmates have read chunks of this novel. <laughs> yeah. So I workshopped it, I think, maybe three semesters out of the four. I took one off at a point where I was sort of blocked with the novel and not sure what happens next. I took time off to work on some short fiction. But yeah, I workshopped it heavily and it was incredibly helpful. Wow. So it's almost like in addition to all the different characters that you profile in a way in this, in the novel, you're also sort of carrying forward all the people you did your whole program with. And like the, you know, you have so many people with a hand in it. It's like a collaborative production in a way. It's so cool. I, it does feel that way. <laughs> yes. Yes. I'm, I'm so thankful to so many different people, even people in pandemic, you know, I have made such wonderful community just online between, you know, Robert Jones Jr. and Disha Filia and some wonderful champions, Don Teal Moniz, KSA Lehman have all been great. People I've never actually met in real life, but, you know, we found a way to, you know, have conversation and community with each other, which has been absolutely wonderful. Robert Jones Jr. was on my podcast. He was so nice. He's awesome, isn't he? He's so great. Yeah. I feel like real life friendships, like what does that even mean? I, I feel like I've made so many, I've like connected with so many people this year. I'm like, I don't even know. Like it, when I walk out on the street, I'm like, am I going to know everybody? Like, I know. Now what? Are there any people who like I've, who might be like, you know, at NYC Flower Girl? Like maybe that's her. Right. Email yeah. I don't know. It's just crazy. Yeah. Relationships can have morphed virtually. And I don't know, I'm interested to see the integration of how you absorb new relationships, right. That you make and, and then put them I know. when this whole thing, God willing ends. But. Well, the funny thing is, is that Robert and I figured out we're neighbors. Like he literally lives doors down from me. <laughs> right. So we're so excited when this is all over to get a drink or a coffee Aww. or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. So what are you working on now? Ah, well, right now I'm really like trying to savor this moment, you know, being a late bloomer, it's like, 
I still am pinching myself that this is happening and I'm trying not to like freak out about the next thing, but I do have an idea for a second novel. And when things quiet down a bit, I'm excited to sort of sit in some quiet time and really think through the characters because that's how things really kind of spark for me is thinking about characters first. So I'm, I'm eager to put some meat on those bones. That's exciting. And the yeah. coming and all sorts of fun stuff. That's great. In terms of like how you would attack it now, now that you don't have the structure of like a program, but you've taken all that knowledge with you. Have you thought about, not to say you have to start thinking about your next project, but how do you, how do you like take all those lessons of community and collaboration and everything? And then when you're not in one of those structured settings, how do you then move forward and like start your next project? Right. Yeah. You know, I think for me, it's about just leaning into what feels natural for me. In in writing fiction, I've never been a huge planner. It's always been like a space where I kind of come in and play and sort of let the characters unfold how they sort of naturally do instead of having like pinpointed like plot points. So for that, it's, it's, you know, it's that for me. And it's also reaching out to like my Iowa friends who are all over the country now doing their own things and saying, Hey, do you mind reading this? You know, do you, we still trade work and, and give feedback. Yeah. Yeah. That's yeah. A silly question. I shouldn't have assumed that just because you're not in the program, you don't still have the same co Oh, it's it's different though, you know, because people, you know, have their they're very busy, people have kids, they have jobs, you know. So it's different from being kind of in that bubble of Iowa where it was like you knew for sure every week you're gonna be workshopping somebody. Yeah. Do so you miss the the journalism world? Uh, (laughs) I miss my friends from the journalism world and I miss, you know, I mean, working at Essence was such a wonderful experience because the women that we covered were so inspirational, you know, themselves. So it was so wonderful to, to connect with women like that and to work on, on like the live programming we did, you know, Essence Festival, that kind of thing was really fun. I have to say, like, I'm I'm happy not to be like managing people or managing budgets or anything like that anymore, especially, you know, it's a really tough, tough climate for print media. And it has been for some time now. So I don't miss that part, but I miss the people for sure. It's such a shame that this has happened to magazines. I feel like I just read, there's a woman named Kristen Van Agrop who used- Yeah, real simple. I know Kristen, yeah. So she has a new book out, coming out called Did I Say That Out Loud? And she has a whole chapter on when she ends up leaving Real Simple. And you can just tell how emotional she was about it. What happens when your baby becomes a true, like, business on the chopping block in a way. Like, I don't know. She just captured what has been happening. I mean, I interned at a magazine when I was like 19. So this is like a long time ago, but you know, as a bystander, I've been witnessing this slow shifting that's happening with the industry. And I'm so sad about it because I love print media. Like I love holding. Yeah, absolutely. It is, it is a really emotional thing. It, it really, really is. Yeah. So I'm sorry that, yeah, it's just to have something so creative and be taken apart. I don't know. It's just real. It's a, it's a, it's a big bummer. Yeah, <laughs> it, it is. <laughs> do you have any advice for aspiring authors? 
Yeah, you know, I was thinking about this question and I think for me it boils down to two things. It is find time and find community. And community can be anything from a writing community, you know, of people that you're trading work with and workshopping, or a community can be like your support system, your family and your friends that like, you know, take over some things off your plate so that you have the time, you know, because you have to put time into it. You have to like sit in the chair and do the work, you know, and you need that mental space to think and to play. So those two things I think would be my top advice. Those are great things. I miss those things. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> awesome. Well, thank you. I'm glad our both of our internet somehow. I know. I was so worried. I'm glad it worked out. <laughs> <laughs> and thank you for this super creative, awesome book, The Final Revival of Opal and Nev. And I'm excited to see all the things from it and whatever you do next. And it's just super exciting. Thank you so much, Zibby. And congrats again. Oh, thank you. <laughs> all right. Have a great day. You too. Okay, bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to this episode of Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Don't forget to follow me on Instagram at Zibby Owens and at Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Also sign up for my newsletter at ZibbyOwens.com and sign up for my virtual book club and meet lots of authors on Zoom every other week. Thanks so much to Steve and Ryan at Texture Sound for the sound editing. And thank you to Morning Moon Productions for providing this fantastic intro and outro music. 